0: got the same Holy Spirit, and Holy Spirit didn't dilute Himself so that He could be in you, He's in you, and to the degree that you are willing to remove the insulation and allow Him to move through you, to that degree will His power manifest and shine through you. Do you know what your number one obstacle is? Who would like to know? Only five of you. Okay, meet me afterwards, I'll tell you. Now, what, you, what the number one obstacle is this thing here. The way you think is robbing you. The way you think is stealing your lunch and popping the bag. As one of my favorite preachers say. So I'm trying to help you this morning to refocus something about the resurrection so that you will see it in a brand new light. Who's ready for that? Amen. All right. So here's the deal. Whenever I think about the resurrection, I can't help but think about the crucifixion because the two events kind of precede one another. And growing up, I constantly had exposure to the crucifixion. And I was actually sharing with Steve the other day how just about every time I gave my life to the Lord all over again. How many of you have ever felt like that? Uh, I'm not alone. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But I I felt like that every time because the, the reality of what he did hit home. And again, it was made new to me just how expensive my sin was. Did you hear me? You see, it might be a free gift to us, but it cost him everything. And he was willing to pay everything to have you. And that's massive. Because you don't pay for something, a value that you can't assign to that thing. How many of you would pay um, one billion dollars for a toothpick? No one. Why? Because a toothpick isn't worth one billion dollars, is it? But if someone paid the the literally the riches of heaven for you, what does it say about your value? So we find ourselves in the early morning of the Sabbath. Matthew 28, verse 1, if you've got your Bible, please go there. Um, If not, you can follow on the screen. It says, Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Isn't that just a rather interesting thing? You know how big that stone was? Guys, do you know how big that stone was? Okay, it was big enough to open the, uh, to close the opening, and it needed soldiers to close, to push it closed. Right? An angel, one angel comes and pushes it and says, oh, "This is quite a nice place to sit down." Just, just to give you a magnitude, it says his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, hold on, let me read. Are you are you helping me there, Stevie? Thanks, man. And for fear of him, the gods trembled and became like dead men. It's probably the first time that heathens fell under the power of God. You didn't get that one, but it's okay. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. Now this is something that I want you to underline in your Bible. How many times has an angel showed up and said these words to someone? Hello? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Mary. Do not be afraid, Joseph. Do not be afraid, isn't it? Every time. Why? Because fear is not your friend. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is Going before you to Galilee, there you will see him. See, I have told you. Now this is the event that we're talking about this morning, isn't it? And what we know about it is that Mary Magdalene and Mary kind of hesitated to, to tell the disciples, not really much, but a little bit, because they knew that they had a bit of a disadvantage socially. Within their time, women's words weren't taken seriously. Today, women's words are taken, taken away more seriously, which is better. Am I right? So, so it's a good thing that we've made a transition from there to here. But the truth is that at the time, for them to claim that two women have been told that the, that Jesus has been raised from the dead had very little credibility. It was a very bad argument. And it was the worst thing you could have done if you're trying to start a movement where you're faking someone's resurrection. It is literally the antithesis to, to what you should do. You need Barack Obama to say this, that Jesus is raised from the dead. Not two women. Isn't that right? Just I just pulled someone's name out of my head. Here, don't worry. So, so but, but I want you to realize this, that, the, that there was no credibility in them saying it. And that is why when they said it to the disciples, the disciples didn't believe them. And so when Jesus shows up in the room, which is a little bit later on, he says to them, why didn't you believe the reports that you heard? And he rebukes them, and literally in the next sentence, he commissions them. So their unbelief didn't get in the way of God's plan. You he just helped them get over it. Am I right? All right. So, so watch this. Now, there is a purpose and a reason why Jesus came to the earth. Do you think His purpose and reason was to die on a cross? No. His purpose and reason was greater than that. We find it. In 1 John 3, 8, in the second part, it says, For the reason, this reason, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Hello? This this means the devil's got works, people. Oh, you're not hearing me this morning. You see, we can either relegate everything to God's works, or we can know that there is a devil working. And if there is a devil working, then there is a devil, an agency working against the will of God because he isn't an agent of God's. And Jesus demonstrated this because he came to what? Destroy. Does it say destroy in your Bible? Destroy. Destroy. doesn't mean placate, let it be. No, no, no. To destroy the works of the devil. And let's just think what that means. When Jesus came across someone who was demon-possessed, what did he do? He cast the demon out. When he came across someone who was a sinner, he forgave them. When he came across someone who was sick, he healed them. When he came across someone who was dead, that's right, he raised them. So would you consider that all of these things were considered by God, the Father, and the Son, as works of the devil. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes, I've got two. Anybody else? Amen. I've got amen. Amen once. All right. Are you you following me here? Listen, if you do not see these things as a work of the devil, then you will not know whether you can trust your father or not. Because you will think that somehow he's up to it. And it's not him. Jesus made it very clear why he came. To destroy the works of the devil. Now, there are four things that Jesus achieved in the resurrection that supported every claim he made. Every claim he made. Now, as you know, Jesus made many claims. And if he was unable to back up his claims, we would consider him to be a liar and a con artist. A very smart trickster. Am I right? But the reality is, Jesus was able to back up his claims. You see, this is what happened. Jesus, by coming back from the grave, has proven that he was who he said he was. Did you hear me? If there was any doubt as to whether Jesus was The anointed Son of God, it was settled the day that he showed himself to disciples and to many other people. There's about 500 other people that Paul talks about in his day that had seen the resurrected Christ. So that Jesus himself being alive today, seated at the right hand of the Father, is proof positive that he was the Son of God. Do you know that even doing miracles doesn't prove you're the Son of God? Because his disciples did miracles. Being Speaking a prophecy doesn't prove you're the Son of God. The only thing that actually proved Jesus was the Son of God was the fact that he rose from the dead. He was preeminent in this. He rose to glorification. The second thing, and we're going to deal with this in a little bit of depth, is that by Jesus being raised from the dead, he proved That death could not hold him. Which means that he provided hope for us that there was life beyond the grave. Woo! Hallelujah! And that death had lost its power over us. But he did that because he had settled the account on sin completely. You see, there was if Jesus had lied about a single thing, if he had tried to deceive people a little bit, when he had been crucified and he had gone to the grave, death would have been able to hold him. Because death lies dormant apart from sin. How many of you know the wages of sin is death? Have you read that? So death lies dormant apart from sin. Which means that when sin comes alive. It gives power to death. And then death rules. Romans 5 says, and it's not in the list. Romans 5 says, and you can go read it at home. Read the whole chapter. It will be good context. It says very clearly that through one man's disobedience, sin came into the world. And through sin, death spread to all men because all men sinned. That is how death was given power. It was given power through Adam's initial disobedience and as sin and disobedience spread, death had legal rights to attack mankind. Death had no power apart from that. Remember, in Genesis 1, God says, when you eat of this tree, you will surely what? These three of you know the answer. I suggest the rest of you should read the beginning of the Bible. Alright, so... So he says clearly, right, that's what you should do. Now, just follow me on this because understand that at the end of the day, Jesus destroyed death by taking away its power, okay, which was sin. And we know that death at the end will be finally destroyed when Jesus returns, but it has no power anymore. Does that make sense? All right. Hope you're tracking with me so far. So some of the claims Jesus made. Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So now Jesus tells his disciples this has to happen, but it's like it just doesn't even hit home. Because when the event goes down, how many of you know it was like the most unexpected thing for them? They were running all over the place. They didn't know what was going on. They, they thought Jesus was talking in some kind of metaphor maybe, but he was telling them exactly what was going to happen.. In John 10:17 it says, "For this reason, the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again, so that you think Jesus knew that what he was going to do? No one takes it from me. When I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Wow. Then he says, for as the father raises the dead, does the father raise the dead? And gives them life. So also the Son gives life to whom He wills. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Now listen, He makes this statement, and it can make some people think, okay, well, here we go. We just got a new judge now, but watch what Jesus says in verse 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Notice he doesn't say will have, he says has. How many of you have believed this? Then you has eternal life. Am I right? Okay, he says he does not come into judgment. Who does not come into judgment? Those who has eternal life. Why? It says here, He doesn't come into judgment, but He has passed from death to life. That means that the minute that you get born again, you transition from death to life. You enter eternity the minute you join the family. Come on. You're an eternal being now. You're living from heaven to earth now. Now. And if you ever looked for a mission and a mandate, let me tell you, there is no greater one than the one that Jesus brought, which which was to bring heaven to earth. And the only way to do that was through you. Yeah, you can look at me like that, but you're it. God's got no plan B. You're plan A. Come on. (laughs) Now, why can I say this? Well, because there's something that the early church believed, something that that was intrinsically connected to the dealing with sin that aligned us and united us with Christ. How many of you would like to find out about that? Thank thank you, Jesus. I've got someone in the audience. Okay, so go with me to Romans 6 verse 3. Don't worry, I'm just picking on the other people. (laughs) Okay, Romans 6 verse 3. Do you not know? So he's saying you should know, right? When someone says, don't you know? Then they're saying you should know. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His? That's right. We were buried therefore with Him. Were you buried with Him? Yes. By baptism into death in order. So there's a reason for this. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. Oh, come on, do you see that? Isn't that amazing? But this is what we believe. Watch for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That means that you are all setting yourselves up for a resurrection glory. I mean, come on, man! Like one day, look, Paul says, I tell you a secret. Okay. Not everyone will fall asleep because some will be changed in the twinkling of an eye when he comes. But all those who fall asleep will first be raised and they will be changed. Into what? Well, we don't know what manner of being we'll be, but we know we'll look like Jesus. Come on, this is glorious, man. This is our, this is our great hope, guys. That's why we don't mourn as others do because no one dies in Christ. You just fall asleep and you wake up in glory. Oh, come on, man. Death has lost its victory. You're eternal now. Stop. Listen, we need to start looking beyond our noses, man. Do you think Paul being chained up, writing to the churches, I'm vexed whether I should remain or whether I should go to the Lord? What was this guy thinking? Well, maybe he didn't love his life even unto death. I'm just saying. Watch this. Verse 6. We know that our old self... Is that your old self? How many of you knew you had an old self? Yeah, that's quite evident. Hallelujah. Right. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin... This is the entire body of sin, the entire volume of sin, the entire immensity of sin, past, present, future, all of it, might be brought to nothing. Listen, nothing, nought, null, zip, bit That's Turkish for nothing. Do you understand that? So you walking around pointing out people's faults, that don't help you, that don't help no one. Because it's dealt with. He dealt with it. Those people need to be brought into reconciliation. You were never given a ministry of condemnation. You were given a ministry of reconciliation. That means at every expense of your own, you would lay down your life to reconcile even one person back to the Father so that he might have a relationship with Him. It's only through that does the Holy Spirit bring transformation and change. So that we would what? What was the purpose of all this? So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Okay, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. And we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. And death no longer has dominion over Him. If you are in Him and death has no dominion over Him, then how much dominion does death have over you? Fair enough. Well done. I'm happy you guys followed my logic there. For the death He died, He died to sin once and for all. Did you notice that? You didn't have to go back to Jesus and ask Him again to die for your sin. Your new sin, He died it for once and for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. That means that Jesus now lives His life in service to the Father. Which means if you've been united with Him in a resurrection like His, and He's in service to the Father, guess in whose service you are. The Father. Isn't that right? That means if you are born again, You have been resurrected into the service of the Father. Now, in order to understand what on earth is going on here, we have to go back to the kind of language Jesus used. When Jesus was on the earth, he spoke about the kingdom of God. He spoke constantly about the kingdom of God. It was the number one thing that he taught. In fact, Jesus never really taught, even though he shared with his disciples some innermost secrets about his death, burial, and resurrection, He didn't teach it as a sermon. He didn't teach it as a way to get saved. He taught about the kingdom. And why? Because Jesus was coming to the earth as what you would call a delegation party to establish a government on the earth. You see, the number one enemy of the ecclesia, the church, is religion. This is not a religious group. This is a government organization. Oh my. Did I say something wrong? This is not a religious group. You have got governmental power given to you by heaven. Heaven's government supersedes every government. Come on, this is what happens in Matthew 16. Jesus, in knowing who he is and what he's achieved, he is speaking to his disciples, and he says, "Hey." He asks his disciples, "Who do you say? Uh, who do people say that I am?" And uh, some of them say John the Baptist, um, and some of them say Elijah, and some of them say Jeremiah, and some of them say some prophets. Did you notice those were all prophets? So they could have just said, well, everyone thinks you're some kind of prophet. Am I right? But the truth of the matter is they were all kind of talking about what they were thinking, what they heard other people saying. It was all kind of in in agreement that he must have been a great prophet. But do you know that if you decide that Jesus was just a great teacher, that he was just a wise man, that he was just a great prophet, that he was just a great priest or, 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 or a priestly person, then you're still limiting Jesus and you're not appreciating the full role that he's playing. So watch what should Jesus finally asks them. He says, but uh, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You know, and Steve did a great job on this particular thing. Who do you say that I am? It was an amazing um, um, preach. You must just go check it out on YouTube. It's a really, really good one. Now, now think about this. Who do you say that I am? Would it matter to you who you say he is? Do you think it would matter to you? Because if you think he's just a prophet, then you'll just get a prophet's reward. But if you see him for who he really is, you can appreciate the magnitude of who he is. Am I right? So Simon Peter is the only one, you know, Peter's the only one who walks on water and drowns, and then he's the only one, he's like... He's that guy, probably a lot like me. So so Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, hold on. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you know that the word Christ there means the anointed king? You are the anointed king. Can you guys remember, there was an instance in Jesus' Kind of early days when he was born, where Herod, the Herod that was at that time, got wind of the fact that a king was being born. And and when he heard a king was being born, he he was trying to find out where is this king. Because why kings don't like to be threatened by other kings. But if you do, you think if they said there's a prophet being born, he would have had the same reaction. See, very important, isn't it? Jesus was hunted because he was the coming king. Does that make sense? And Jesus answered them, "Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and the word there for Peter is Petros in the Greek." And on this rock, and the word rock there is petra, which is a, another Greek word. I will build my church. That's the word ecclesia. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Against what? The ecclesia that is based upon the rock that came out of Peter's mouth. And what was that? The kingship of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul writes, I build on no other foundation but Christ. Why? Because he's the king. He's the cornerstone. He's the plumb line. He is the measure of the fullness of everything. Jesus is king. Now, something that we as people living in South Africa don't always understand about the differences in democracies and kingdoms is is that a democracy is really about the people looking around and trying to find the pleb they're going to blame for everything. Yeah, yeah, we'll vote you in, so when you make a mistake like we would, but, you know, you're in the spotlight, so you're going to get the blame. A very famous preacher once said, we're not very smart in how we choose, and then we choose someone not so smart, and then we complain about why they're not so smart. that funny okay well i thought it was so so the democracy the people choose the leader and then the leader chooses a cabinet and then the cabinet gets paid a lot of money to influence the leader to make the decision that big corporations wanted to make then i sum it up okay yeah i think i think so all right so so that's that's what happens in a democracy. In a kingdom, what happens is the king chooses the people. Jesus said to his disciples, you have not chosen me, I chose you. Isn't that right? The king chooses the people, and then the king chooses his council. The senate of the king, that word in the Greek, the idea came from the Greeks. The Romans used it. It was called an ecclesia. The king would choose a senate. The senate would be those who would hear the king's desire, his will, his intention. And then they would form litigation and laws and rules and and methods to implement his vision. They never debated his vision. They never said, well, you know, that doesn't quite look like heaven. And they never voted him in. And they never voted him out. And by the way, how did you become a citizen of heaven? Were you born? Hello. How many of you believe you're born again? Right. So were you born into the kingdom? So that means you were born a king. No one can vote you out. Oh, hallelujah. Like if you, if you get this, man. It's a whole new dimension. You see, Jesus was never voted in. And no one can vote him out. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom. Okay? God has established the foundation. Jesus said, in this very next verse, he says, upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. In other words, on the, on the foundation that I am the anointed king, the son, Of the living God, my church will rule. Because everything we have hinges on what Jesus did at the resurrection. If Jesus was never raised from the dead, we would have no evidence that he had conquered death or sin, or even that our sicknesses were paid for but His resurrection proves once and for all that He is the King He claimed to be. He was King over death. He was King over sin. He was King over the grave. And He lives forevermore. Jesus is King. How many of you are enjoying yourself this morning? Is that the end? Right, so Jesus leaves us one command, right? He takes uh, all the law and all the commandments and everything, and he leaves us one command. Is he is he uh, king? Does he get to tell us what to do? Are you sure? So kings don't get to suggest things. They get to make rules. And Jesus says to his disciples, he says, now go and love one another as I have loved you. How many of you know that's proven to be pretty tough? Hey? Am I wrong? No. It's pretty tough, right? That's why it's got to be with God's help, people. And Jesus knew this. And this is why Jesus sent the Holy Spirit as the governor of heaven to come and govern your hearts. So that as you surrender to His guidance, the culture of heaven can be instilled in you and you can begin to walk out heaven on the earth. Amen? So in conclusion, guys, this is what I want to say. The power of the resurrection is the evidence that Jesus was who He said He was and that He did what He said He would do and that He established His kingdom on the earth through the here. but he is the anointed king of kings, and the kings he is kings, king over are you. And the lords that he is lord over are you. And he has positioned you today, right now, as an instrument of change wherever you are. You are the, you are the gate between heaven and earth, wherever you go, if you will agree with the purposes and the intent and the will of heaven. Now, you might have felt that that's not what you've been doing in the last while. You might have felt that you've been so far removed from that, and you want to re, kind of re-say, you know, I understand, Lord, this is what you've called me to. This is actually what you want me to do. And I want to make a stand today and say, I'm in on that. I'm going to stand up today and say, yes, me. I'm going to represent heaven in my workplace, in my family, everywhere, because I understand that I have been appointed by the king to be his ambassador on the earth. I'm not living for everyone else. I'm living for him. Amen? If that's you, please stand up. I would like to pray with you. Well, let's hope so.